Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. We're going to go through now the various petitions of the Lord's Prayer. There are actually seven of them. The first one, of course, is Hallowed Be Thy Name. Now, of course, that's a very old-fashioned word, hallowed. But really what's in play here, really what's being meant by this, is this concept of sanctifying God's name. Sanctify your name. So, for example, you might look at a verse like uh, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 23. It says, I will sanctify, this is obviously God speaking, I will sanctify my great name. So that's really the, the concept here, that God's name, the name of the Holy One of Israel, will be sanctified. And so, this is uh, something that comes into play in John's Gospel as well. If you read John's Gospel in chapter 12, uh, we see these words. In John 12, Jesus is speaking, and he says this. This is in John 12, verse 28. This is Jesus praying here about his death. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Okay, so this is the the concept of God glorifying his name, sanctifying his name, And this is what he does. And this is what we have to do as well throughout our own lives. And so we we don't want to misuse God's name. You know, clearly swearing, uh, taking God's name in vain uh, is inappropriate for the believer. But it's also true in terms of taking oaths. And this is something that Jesus dealt with earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Now, taking oaths was a big deal uh, back in those times. Before the advent of literary contracts, uh, people used to take an oath. I swear, you know, I'm going to fulfill my part of the bargain. And so, because of the fact that we humans are sinful and very often you don't know if you can trust the other person, oaths were taken in the name of people's gods and it was almost like calling down their God to bear witness. I'm going to come through with this. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. And if I don't, hey, there are threats. There are threats. You know, if I don't fulfill my part of the bargain, the violator of this deal is going to be in big, big trouble. And so we can't do this with God. In Leviticus 19.12, it says, You shall not swear falsely by my name. So as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So we also see this, um, pay the vows 
carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. We see this in Psalm 50 verse 14. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to be people that uh, don't fulfill our word. And so we, we need not call God's name into play by this. This is why we as Catholics should simply be trustworthy. Uh, if we say yes, we're going to go through with it. If we say no, uh, then we won't. And so this is kind of in the background, too, when we, when we talk about hallowing God's name. And the, and the Greek word here is hagienzen. It's, it comes from the, the same word that we get the word saints from, uh, hagios in Greek. It means the holy ones. So this idea that we should share in God's holiness. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. So really, it's the holiness of God that enables us to be holy as well. And Scott Hahn, in his book, Understanding Our Father, he, he reminds us that the same word in Hebrew for holiness, which is the word kiddushin, is also the same word that is used for marriage. And so, it's this idea that we are kind of, again, marrying God. Uh, God's people are always uh, perceived as a bride in Scripture, his people Israel, and also his bride, the church, the bride of Christ in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And so, how is marriage achieved? Well, it, it's not through a contract, okay? It's not an exchange of goods and services. It's a covenant. Now, a covenant is different. A covenant is an exchange of persons, not things, not items. And in the ancient world, there are all kinds of covenants that were made. For example, uh, two nations that were making terms of peace, very often they would make a covenant with one another uh, for that peace. And in every covenant in the ancient world, there is always a party that's more powerful and another party in the, in the covenant that, that doesn't have the power. And so the more powerful party was known as the suzerain, the less powerful party was known as the vassal, you know, the vassal state. And so what they would do is they would make this covenant and they would literally take an animal and cut it into pieces and they would walk between the pieces of the animal. And it was kind of a way of saying, if I'm not faithful to the covenant, may this happen to me. May the fate of this animal happen to me. It was a very, very serious matter. And that's why when God makes his covenant with Abraham. He makes a series of covenants in Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, when he makes his covenant with Abraham, that's what happens. There is an animal that is cut in pieces, and there's a flaming torch that passes through the pieces. That's really the presence of God. Abraham sees this in his vision, that God is binding himself to this covenant. And so that's the penalty. <laughs> and you don't want that. You don't want the judgment. This is, this is the fact that blessings or curses can come through these covenants. If we're faithful to our end in the covenant, we can expect blessing. If we're not faithful to God, unfortunately, there are consequences. Deuteronomy 11.26, it says, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. So let's choose the blessing. Let's be faithful to our covenant with God. And so to take God's name is to not only put yourself under his judgment, uh, not only to invoke his name, which is really that, that power behind the covenant, as Scott Hahn says, it makes us, it, makes, it reminds us that, 
this is a personal relationship that we have with him. We are his people. We are his people. When we say, hallowed be thy name, we understand that we belong to God. We belong to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's what we do when we bless ourselves. We, we proclaim that we belong to his family. It's very much like with ancient Israel in the Old Testament. God says, the whole earth is mine, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. He says, the whole earth is mine, but, he says to Israel, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. So even though God owns the entire universe, he created it, he still has this very special relationship with his people, Israel. And of course, this then becomes expanded to potentially all nations in the church. And, and of course, the Catholic Church has people from everywhere, every background, every ethnicity in the church, God's expanding family. And so that word in the Old Covenant that's used, though, about this special relationship that God has with his people is the word segula, which means to set something apart. So we are set apart. We are set apart. Uh, we belong to God in a special way, and he belongs to us too. It's very much like the marriage covenant. And Mary herself, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, the Annunciation and following, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, her relative Elizabeth, and she says, holy is his name. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. In other words, hallowed be thy name. So there's got to be that family resemblance, as it were. God is holy, and we have to be holy as well. As he says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so this is this, this tight family bond, this covenant that God has with us. All right, now let's look at the second petition in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Now, this is really the, the essence of the message of Jesus. If you were to ask, what is the message of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, if you read the Gospels, the key to his message is the kingdom of God. And this is what he says when he inaugurates his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, to repent means to change your ways. It means to make a 180. If you're walking in one direction, you turn around, you come back in the other direction towards God. And believe in the good news. To believe doesn't simply mean to know something intellectually. It means to actually commit your whole life, to orient your whole life towards this message. It's to become obedient to God. So again, it's, it's, it's belief in action. And so, What's interesting about this is that Jesus says that the kingdom of God has come near, but we still pray. We still pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. So that means that it hasn't come yet in all its fullness. It's here, but there's sort of a, a not yet component as well. And It's interesting, too, because in the last episode, we talked about the Kaddish, which is a, an ancient Jewish prayer that is very much like the Our Father, very much like the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, Jesus is basing the Lord's Prayer off of this. He's just expanding it and adding his own flavor to it. Remember in the Kaddish, it actually says that, may God's kingdom come speedily and soon. 
very similar to thy kingdom come. And this is really important to know. We can play a part in this too. We can make the kingdom come more quickly by becoming obedient uh, to its ways, becoming obedient to its laws, the law of love. And really, this is what the kingdom is is all about. It's the kingdom of right relationships. If I were to explain to somebody just in, in street language, what is the kingdom of God all about? That's what I'd say. It's the kingdom of right relationships, having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. It's really important, that vertical plane, as it were, not that God is straight up, although, of course, Jesus does raise his eyes to heaven when he prays. It's kind of a manner of speaking, but as we talked about before, the heaven is really all around us. But we, we have that vertical plane, that relationship with God. We also have the horizontal plane, the relationship with one another, having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. This is God's will for us. We have sort of the vertical beam, the horizontal beam, the two form a cross. I, I don't think that's unintentional. That's what it's all about. So this kingdom has to do with relationships, but there's something else in play as well. The kingdom of God is mentioned in the Old Testament as well, with something very, very concrete in mind. You know, for the first thousand years of since the Exodus until the time of King David, there was no king in Israel. In fact, God himself was their king. This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 5. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So the concept was God himself would rule over the people. But as we know, if you read your Old Testament, you know that, as Scott Hahn says, they, they had a bit of an inferiority complex, Israel. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have the exact same setup that they had. They wanted a king, a, a dynasty, a royal dynasty, just like the others had. And so in the book of Judges, there's an attempt to make Gideon, who was a, a powerful warrior, there's an attempt to make him the king. But this is what Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. Don't try to make a dynasty out of my family. The Lord will rule over you. And that's in Judges chapter 8, verse 23. But the people kept on clamoring and clamoring and clamoring. And in 1 Samuel 8, 5, it says, Appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. And so God eventually did relent. Uh, he allowed them to have their king. But ultimately, this served God's purposes in the world. Because what was the kingship that they were going to have? It would be with Saul, first of all, King Saul, but eventually it would go to the house of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. It says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, speaking to Saul here, and the Lord has appointed him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, of course, that person after God's own heart was David himself. And out of David's line, according to his human nature, came the Messiah, who obviously would bring 
every nation under heaven, under his kingship. And so, this is what's prophesied, in, in a sense, by King David in, in Psalm 2, which is, has always been seen by the church as a messianic psalm, even from earliest times. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Psalm 2 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, ultimately that came true in Jesus Christ. He is the king who will possess the entire creation, and every single knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as St. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians. And so, this is how the throne of the king will be established for all times, not just for uh, that period of David's kingship over the house of Israel. God had a plan for this to last forever. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this branch that will kind of rise up from the stump of Jesse, and of course, Jesse was the father of King David. You might remember the a doomsday cult, if you will, in Waco, Texas, some years ago with David Koresh, this Messiah figure. They called themselves the Branch Davidians. They, they took that scripture and he applied it to himself. There's been many false messiahs throughout the history of the world, but Jesus Christ is legitimate. He fits the bill. He is God incarnate. And so, this is what it's all about. The promise that was to be fulfilled in the kingdom set up by Jesus Christ. And that's what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come. So if you look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, that that very first verse, and that's known as the incipit, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the the fact that David is in in a sense the the ancestor of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the son of David, This is something that Matthew wants to get across so powerfully. And Matthew's gospel is really written to a a Jewish audience primarily. Now, obviously, we can read it too, but Matthew, the reason why Matthew comes first, by the way, in your your Bible, in your New Testament, why it's the first book of the New Testament is because it serves as a natural bridge between the Old Covenant and the New. It wasn't the first gospel that was written. That would be the gospel of Mark. But Matthew really, really is a a great bridge because it shows how Jesus is not only the son of David, he is also a new Moses. Matthew is divided up into five sections. It's like the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Uh, Just as Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Jesus goes up the Mount of Beatitudes to present the new law. That's really the Sermon on the Mount, and that's that's where we find the Lord's Prayer. It's a big component of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a big feature. It's the, the feature that teaches us how to pray. But just as Moses brought forth ten commandments from God, Jesus brings ten Beatitudes. And we'll get into that later on. I hope to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount. There are actually ten Beatitudes, not eight, as you've heard. Uh, people just divide them up differently. But there are actually ten when you really look at the text closely. And so that, that's what really Matthew's trying to get across to his audience who Jesus really is. And so, now that he has come, the kingdom is here. 
And when Nathanael met Jesus, and you can read this in John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathanael said, Rabbi, to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He was able to see this. And so when you look at the catechism, it sort of identifies the kingdom with Jesus himself. Let's look at paragraph 2816 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, in the New Testament, the word basilia, and that's the Greek word for kingdom, it can be translated by kingship, kingdom, or reign. The kingdom of God lies ahead of us. It is brought near in the word incarnate. It is proclaimed throughout the whole gospel, and it has come in Christ's death and resurrection. The kingdom of God has been coming since the Last Supper, and in the Eucharist it is in our midst. The kingdom will come in glory when Christ hands it over to his Father. It may even be that the kingdom of God means Christ himself, whom we daily desire to come and, and whose coming we, we wish to be manifested quickly to us. For as he is our resurrection, since in him we rise, so he can also be understood as the kingdom of God, for in him we shall reign. That's, that's a powerful paragraph in the Catechism. So really, you could say Christ himself is the kingdom because this is where the reign of God is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's another aspect to this as well. There's, of course, the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, and that's the church. That also is the kingdom of God on earth as well, in a certain sense, in a certain sense. We can identify it with the church. You're listening to... The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Let's talk about how the church really can be the kingdom on earth. This is what St. Augustine said. St. Augustine said, quote, Now the church is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. He's very plain about this, St. Augustine. And so he said this in his book, The City of God, by the way, if you want to know uh, the reference for that. If the church really is the kingdom, we know that it kind of means that the kingdom that the kingdom has kind of got a beachhead, if you will, in this world. It, it's got some territory in this world, but it doesn't. It, it hasn't come in all its fullness yet. Not everyone has been converted. Not everyone in the church is is completely obedient to the will of God. So we need more of this. We need more of this, and so that's why we pray, "Thy kingdom come." And it's really interesting. And Scott Hahn points this out in his book that when do we pray? the Lord's Prayer. Would we pray thy kingdom come in the liturgy, in the Mass? We pray it just before we receive Jesus in Holy Communion. That's what it says in the Catechism, too, in paragraph 2771. It says, in the Eucharist, the Lord's Prayer also reveals the eschatological character of its petitions. Now, that's a a $5 word, eschatological. What does it mean? It has to do with the end times, That's what eschatology is. It's the study of the end times. Catechism goes on to say, it is the proper prayer of the end time, the time of salvation that began with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and will be fulfilled with the Lord's return. The petitions addressed to our Father, as distinct from the prayers of the Old Covenant, rely on the mystery of salvation already accomplished, once for all, in Christ crucified and risen. So the Lord's Prayer really is the end time prayer. And the salvation comes to us personally with Jesus 
in the Eucharist. So, wow. That's when we know that the kingdom has come, the king is here in our midst. That's just a, a really beautiful, beautiful prayer. Let's look really quickly at the third petition uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, some people ask, you know, how is it possible to resist the will of God? How can God's will not be done? That's a very good question. We'll, we'll deal with that later. But we have to remember also that kingdom means God's reign, God's sphere of rule. Now, he certainly rules completely in heaven. I think about in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He got kicked out because God's rule is the only law of heaven. There is no rebellion there, but there is here on earth. People can oppose the will of God. People can outright reject it. That's really what sin is all about. And so we don't have 100% compliance to God's will in this, in this world for now, but we pray that that will be the case in the future. Uh, this is what it says here in an ancient prayer of the rabbis. Uh, there's an ancient rabbinical prayer. May your will be done in heaven above and grant ease to those on earth that fear you. And we see in Psalm 135, verse 6, something similar. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Uh, he can't be resisted except for the fact that he's given us freedom. Uh, he has chosen to give us freedom to do just that. And, and that's it's mind-boggling to some of us. Why would God allow sin to exist in this world? Well, I think part of the answer is in a popular phrase. Maybe you've heard this phrase. Uh, maybe someone told this to you when a romantic relationship went wrong. It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. If God created us to be robots who would always do his will, there's no chance of love because love has to be freely chosen. And God wants our love. He's thirsting for our love. He didn't make us as automatons that would always do his will. He gave us a choice. He didn't create sin, but he did give us the freedom to say no. And sin simply results when people say no to God. And so we don't want that. We want that real relationship. We want that real love. God is a gentleman lover. He'll, he'll never force us to, quote unquote, marry him, as it were, as his bride. But we freely choose to say yes to him. And let's do that. Let's do that so that the kingdom will come in all its fullness on earth. That's all the time we have for today. But if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio. And I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless. Thank you.